Greetings, everybody. It's Pastor Thomas Booher here. Um, I wanted to let me get this camera straightened out. Let me back up just a little bit here. Okay. I <clears throat> wanted to talk a little bit here about um, the end times, as we refer to it in shorthand among Christians. Uh, fancier term, I guess, would be eschatology. But I want to explain uh, a few things. I posted on Facebook, I believe, yesterday. Uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, a screenshot, or a, I actually shared the post of a uh, prominent church here in Sanford. Um, and uh, they had this big dispensationalist sort of chart behind the minister who was preaching or teaching on this. And uh, I simply shared it and said, we are still teaching the error of dispensationalism. Do Christians here understand that this was a system of doctrine invented in the mid to late 1800s? Well, it's probably more like the early 1800s and gained popularity in the mid to late 1800s. But uh, my point is simply that this is something that is prominent in our churches in our nation today, uh, that Christ is going to return uh, at any moment, at any time, and generally when you see things getting worse and worse, that is a clear sign that Christ's return, Christ coming, is um, all the more near. And he could come today, he could come tomorrow, he could come at any moment, so be ready. Uh, that sort of belief and sentiment is in many churches and has been uh, many evangelical type churches for the last 150 years. And so I want to note two things up front about this. One, the teaching is novel, it is new, uh, and it is error, and in its rawest forms uh, it really can be and was when it originated uh, in the 1800s, 1830s or so, uh, it was regarded as heresy. Um, I would not say that everybody holds to dispensationalism or some form of it is a heretic. I would say they are holding to error, uh, and those who teach it are especially uh, teaching error. And to what degree and what version of dispensation you hold, you hold to will determine the degree of error that you're holding to and teaching. And uh, misleading, uh, I trust unintentionally, of course, but misleading people. And so I want to spend some time talking about the effects of, of this, how this can um, damage uh, our, our uh, belief, our psyche as Christians, but above all, our witness being salt and light and building for the generations ahead. If you believe that Christ is, Christ is going to return immediately, you're not going to be looking uh, at all at the long game because there is no long game. There's only the immediate, the short term. And basically, in brief, as brief, briefly as I can, I want to show how this has really affected over the last 150 plus years. Um, we've wasted in some ways and squandered our rich heritage as a, uh, a Christian nation, as a nation that was founded on Christian principles because of the, what often can be sort of doomsdayism, um, from a novel teaching that is erroneous, that's been around for less than 200 years. Uh, and at the same time, because of this dispensa dispensational, the rapture is imminent coming right away theology, even though it's a very new teaching in the church, uh, 
it's already disproven. <laughs> because for the last 150 plus years, many churches in our nation have believed this and have said, get ready, Christ is coming back in our lifetime or, you know, very soon. And it hasn't happened. Uh, many things have happened. The Civil War, uh, both world wars, uh, more recent wars. You know, we went through a Great Depression. Uh, we're going through some crazy stuff in our nation now, and yet Christ has not yet returned. Now, why is that? And why do we continue to teach these errors? And why do people continue to believe them? That is what I want to focus on. And I want to say up front that I have people I love uh, laypersons, you know, members of churches, pastors, who are to one degree or another on that sort of uh, dispensational spectrum of belief. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, very influential to me, um, you know, coming right out of high school and so on about 15 years ago, uh, was, it is, John MacArthur. And he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. And uh, the post that I shared on Facebook, the uh, church there, I went to their school here in Sanford. I don't want to put their names. If you see it, you'll know their names. It's not about attacking or going at any one church here. Rather, it's to point out that if I speak against these things or put forward a different interpretation of, of Scripture on these matters, which I hope to do in brief here, for most conservative Christians that are in our town and in our nation today, you've never even probably heard of an alternative understanding of the end times and the rapture. You've been taught that this is simply what the Bible says, and nobody questions this. But I hope to be able to open your eyes from God's word and just from the reality of actual history in the church, that this rapture teaching of the you know imminent return of Christ, the two, really two comings, two second comings of Christ that dispensationalism holds to, uh, the separation of the church from the Jews, uh, going on into eternity, perhaps even, uh, is all novel and false teaching. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that holds to this, to, to, to this teaching, to this error, um, is, you know, not converted or something like that. I think many are, most are. Um, it doesn't change the fact that it has greatly damaged the church and has led some into, uh, you know, apostasy or outright beliefs that are, you know, would lead you to, to judgment, showing you don't truly belong to the Lord, don't truly trust in Christ, and so on. So, you know, I want to preface that because, you know, we can go back to the modernist fundamentalist controversy of 100 years ago, and it was those who were more dispensational-leaning who were some of the few who still were wanting to hold to the Bible and its teaching and over against you know, others who were just abandoning that in every sense of the word. And so I'm thankful in that regard uh, for some dispensationalist brethren and some of the thing that, things that they have done in the past. Uh, as I mentioned, John MacArthur is a good one. In fact, I believe the chart that was shared was inspired or directly taken from uh, David Jeremiah in the post that I was critiquing. Uh, David Jeremiah, you know, he's a popular pastor. I've heard him on the radio. And when he's just preaching in the Bible and not going into some of these other things, he can say some things that are helpful uh, and beneficial. So I'm not trying to, uh, at any level, say that anybody who holds to any form of this is uh, going to hell or anything like that. At the same time, this is serious error. And I, I, we, we should understand that. You know, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. We have particular convictions about the Word of God that 
Really, the founding of our nation was was the mainstream at the time. What is popular doesn't determine what is true. What is true is determined by God's word in the light of nature, of his nature, of what he's created. Uh, and our, our bedrock foundation is the word of God. And so we want to go to the word of God to work through these matters. But first, we have to understand what we're discussing. And I trust for some, perhaps for many of you, um, again, the idea that you know, the immediate return of Christ, an imminent rapture, uh, the tribulation period, and all these things are probably things that you have believed and never questioned because that no other position, no other understanding of the Bible and God's word was ever presented to you. Well, uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, a, a gentleman who's been coming to our church, he gave me this little helpful handy book that really summarizes uh, some of the same critiques that I'm going to give here. It's called Why... The End is Not Near, uh, by a minister, Dwayne Garner, who used to be uh, a Baptist minister, a premillennial dispensationalist, and uh, now he and I would both be, uh, broadly speaking, in the Reformed Presbyterian camp. Uh, You know, we may have some differences, but we have far more, you know, agreement. Uh, My father uh, went to, uh, I think, what is now called Clark Summit University, but he was back there, back when it's called Baptist uh, Bible College and Seminary, I believe. Uh, he grew up in a Baptist uh, denomination, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, and of course they were dispensational-leaning uh, as well. So many of you, most of you, most of us either grew up dispensational, went to a Christian school that was dispensational, uh, or still are dispensational. And because it's like the air that you breathe, you assume this is just what the Bible teaches and and you don't question it. Although I think some are beginning to, I hope, question it because they realize, wow, we've been saying this my whole life. My parents, my grandparents have been echoing this uh, their whole lives. You know, some of them are dead now. You know, some of them, if they're still alive, would be over 100 years old. And yet this coming of Christ hasn't happened yet. What's going on? It can be disillusioning. It could lead even some people to perhaps question the teaching of the Bible altogether. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of this. This is like 40 pages. You can read this in an hour. Uh, you know, I read it probably in 30 minutes just a little bit ago here. Um, now, I'm very familiar with a lot of this stuff already um, to, to one degree or another. But, you know, take your time on reading something like this. Sorry, a phone call. And... Uh, you know, it'll 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 be helpful to you, I believe. So, I'm going to read uh, basically the summary of the main tenets or beliefs of dispensational theology. That you know, is the rapture near? The rapture is going to be immediate. What are the main points of dispensationalism? Well, here is it. Here it is: the doctrines of the imminent second coming of Jesus Christ, together with the rapture of the saints, Christians. The future seven-year tribulation. I'm sure if you've seen the Left Behind movies, this is all familiar to you. Or maybe, for some of us, a little bit like PTSD-inducing and cringe. But, by the way, Kirk Cameron is now not uh, a dispensationalist at all who played in those films. Anyway, um, the future seven-year tribulation, the future appearance of an apostate world leader known as the Antichrist, and the 1,000-year reign of Christ on a physical throne in Jerusalem are the central eschatological or end times elements of the theological system known as dispensationalism. All right, that those that 
connection of doctrines and teachings are unique to dispensationalism, as, and as we'll see in a minute, have been around for less than 200 years. Now, there is a note here that there is something called historic premillennialism, which has some of these distinctives, but not all of them, not two second comings of Christ, not a seven-year tribulation and all that, uh, that have been held since the early church. Um, and then more of more recent time, certain um, ones that those in these circles might be familiar with, familiar with like uh, Charles Spurgeon, held to a historic premillennial view, but explicitly rejected dispensationalism. Uh, even John MacArthur says he's a leaky dispensationalist, so he's trying to qualify that. And in more recent years, there have been even less um, problematic versions uh, of dispensationalism, like progressive dispensationalism, uh, that have recognized, frankly, some of the issues with the most raw and old-school forms of dispensationalism that have backed off of some of the most problematic positions. But right now we're talking about what was shared on one of the churches here in Sanford, which is still prominent in the convictions of many in town here uh, of these core teachings, which I just read from in this book to you about dispensationalism. So you go on over and you basically get a little bit more instruction on dispensationalism, what they teach here. They teach dispensationalism that, that uh, from the age of Adam to the age of Noah and from the age of Abraham to the ages of Moses and David, God continually presents new plans by which man may please him, scrapping all previous plans in the process. In each age, God sets up new rules and covenants, which man fails to keep, until finally God sends Jesus to establish another plan with the cross and the establishment of the church. That's the, the teaching of dispensationalism. This current church age, according to dispensationalism, was unknown to the Old Testament prophets and is essentially a plan B. God formulated this plan B in response to the failure of the Jewish people to obey the demands of the previous covenants and to recognize the Messiah. And so they're saying there's this parenthetical church age that is God's plan B, but ultimately will eventually he'll get back to plan A with the Jews. And so you see a strong distinctive of the dispensational view is that the Jewish people, uh, Israel and the church are separate that we're not one people grafted in by faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, as the New Testament teaches and says, but that there is this separation between Israel, the Jews, and, and the church, uh, such that the church uh, you know, is really a plan B. So the church age is not permanent, for God has yet another plan in the works. Dispensationalism teaches that at the end of the church age, Jesus will return to take his people up to heaven. This is the event known as the rapture. And as I noted at the outset, uh, the idea that this rapture will happen is usually always presented as very near, imminent. He could return at any moment. Um, and Christ will come in this event known as the rapture for a period of time while he pours out terrible judgment on the earth below, culminating in his victory and the establishment of an earthly political kingdom wherein he reigns from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Uh, this represents the fulfillment of God's promise to David of a perfect kingdom in which Messiah would rule. During this 1,000-year reign, dispensationalism teaches that Satan will be bound, the temple will be rebuilt, and the sacrificial system will be re reinstituted. Now, read the book of Hebrews. It says, That has been put away forever because Christ has come and shed his blood 
We do not go back to animal sacrifices because Christ has come and shed his blood. Um, even that dispensation for them is not permanent, for there is yet another dispensation on the way, another time frame. The millennial kingdom will come under attack by wicked people remaining on the earth, led by Satan, whom Christ has loosed. This is the arguments of dispensationalism. Christ will vanquish them and destroy the planet and usher in what is expected to be the final dispensation, the heaven age. Now, again, all these teachings put together are a unique brew, cocktail, invented less than 200 years ago, known as dispensationalism. Uh, they have not one second coming of Christ, but two second comings of Christ. That is, you know, the seven-year period of tribulation, uh, and so on and so forth. And there's some intramural debates on that among dispensationalists that we won't take the time to go into, but except to note that historic premillennialism does not hold to any of that. Um, so, what is one of the big issues here with um, dispensationalism? Well, the fact that they say and believe, and many Christians, God-fearing, godly men and women hold to this, that Christ will return at any moment, that the church is kind of plan B, uh, and that there isn't an optimism or a hope in many ways that many will be saved, but rather on earth at this time, uh, much will get worse. Many will fall away or many will not come to faith in Christ at all. You put all that together, and if you're consistent with that, you're going to live day by day, moment by moment, not building for the future, because really a future of, of, of optimism and, and, and growth of, of the church and the kingdom is all in the future, after Christ returns, according to dispensationalism. And so it kills any real fervor to see growth, except for what they believe can happen in their lifetime or even in the next couple of years, perhaps, uh, because who knows, it might be all Christ might return before then. And so what do you see in these types of churches over and over again? Well, a very heavy, uh, one-sided emphasis on, um, evangelism and evangelism in forms that are not the best to say the least. In other words, it's, it's it's you know melded in in many circumstances with what is sometimes called the seeker sensitive church you know well we got to get people saved that's the number one priority because Christ is going to come back at any moment we need to get as many into the lifeboat as possible before Christ returns and judges everyone and so you know we're going to have altar calls we're going to have you know say this prayer to get into heaven we're going to make it as simple as possible uh, just to get numbers and souls saved because that's all that we can really do. That's all the church is really primarily tasked with, uh, because Christ is going to come back quickly. And after all, many people are just going to fall and turn away anyways. Now, I think that some dispensationalists would not be so gloomy on that, but that is the essence of this old school variety of dispensationalism. And I would be glad to hear others say, no, 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 we're not that, you know, we don't really believe all those things. We do think the church is going to grow. That'd be great. Uh, but that would be a revision of the typical dispensational teaching. Uh, we want evangelism. We want people to come to faith in Christ. But the great commission that Christ gave is, notice several things it says there in Matthew 28. It says, Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. 
therefore go. In other words, because I have all authority now, right now, not in the future, but right now in heaven and on earth, therefore go and do what? And make disciples where? Of all the nations. And in what way? Baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And then you think of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and so on. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, uh, Christ is saying he has, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords now. When did he establish his kingdom? Well, the dispensationalists say that's sometime yet in the future. It hasn't been established yet. What did Christ, John the Baptist, and then Christ himself and the apostles preach? They preached what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God began in the first coming of Christ. You know, 2,000 years ago. It will be consummated and fully realized at his final coming. But Christ is Lord of all now. Christ has crushed the serpent's head on the cross. Satan is still a prowling lion, a roaring lion, you know, seeking whom he may devour, as it says in Peter. But he's also a lion on the chain of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's restricted. He's bound. Remember, Christ came driving out demons. And they said, wait, wait, our time is not yet. It had begun because Christ had come and began driving them out. The apostles did so as well as a sign of the restrictions of Satan so that he could no longer deceive the nations in the same way. Why? Because Christ has come. Christ has shed his blood. And Christ says in the Great Commission, all authority is given to me. When? Not in the future, but when he ascended back up to heaven there in the first century. And because of that, now go to these nations that were once blinded by Satan in a great measure, and now the light of the gospel can shine through because Christ is going to work in the hearts of sinners in a powerful way over the generations to come uh, to save many from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so that kingdom rule and reign has begun uh, in Christ in the first coming, but is not realized or consummated until his final coming at the end of time. But the dispensationalist, again, doesn't see that, sees the kingdom as a future thing after the tribulation, after the second comings of Christ, as they have it. And so you see how that changes the view of what we should be doing right now, which, again, is going to not look at teaching all that I have commanded and all the word of God, because the Bible's detailed and there's lots of doctrine there. And then, that, you know, if people disagree on doctrine, we might not have as many people in our church. And they're going to say, well, that's trifling differences. So let's just get souls saved because Christ is going to come back real soon. When rather, Christ said, his kingdom has come to earth. What is Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we are to pray for and to pursue. The gospel, the good news, is not merely of individual salvation to get raptured out of here before the bad stuff really happens. No, the gospel message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Christ has parables about, you know, multiplying your minas and your talents and, and, and building up the kingdom of God in keeping with the Lord's prayer and keeping with Christ's power and his present rule over the earth from heaven above. Now, dispensationalism believes that Christ must return and rule on a literal throne on earth in Jerusalem, like Jerusalem on this earth. 
But the scriptures speak of the heavenly Jerusalem, and it speaks of the reign of Christ from heaven above, that his blood is presented not on the earthly tabernacle made with hands. Go to Hebrew, just read the book of Hebrews. But in the heavenly, true Jerusalem, not made with hands, the true abode of God, which is heaven above. And Christ is presently ruling. Christ, God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Christ is presently ruling and reigning over the nations and establishes, establishing his kingdom on earth right now from the right hand of the Father. Now, when you begin to see this and understand this from Scripture, it is a freeing thing if you have been sort of in the shackles uh, and narrow view of dispensationalism. Now, again, thankfully, there are leaky dispensationalists. There are those who recognize there's problems with the system, so to speak, in that um, not all look at some of Jesus' teachings on the Beatitudes or whatever and say, well, that won't really happen until the kingdom age, which isn't yet. They'll at least be willing to say, well... Yeah, maybe that'll really be, you know, realized in the future. But hey, there's some things about that that could still happen now. There's, there's, that's the first step in the right direction, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but let me go on to the origin of dispensationalism, because I've made the claim multiple times already that this is a new and novel system. And you might be saying, well, prove it. Okay, well, again, I'm going to use this book to kind of help, um, Why the End is Not Near by Dwayne Garner to help in a succinct way. Uh, explain that. So the origin of dispensationalism. Many commonly assume that such a complex doctrine must certainly have been around for the entire history of the church, but by all in, uh, all indications, dispensationalism was developed in Scotland in the early 19th century, so the early part of the 1800s. Some historians trace uh, the origins of dispensationalism to the visions of a young Scottish woman named Margaret MacDonald, a member of the Plymouth Brethren Church, whose trances revealed to her that the return of Christ would be in two distinct stages. She dreamed that the believer would be caught up to the Lord in the air, pre preceding the days of the Antichrist and before a final revelation of Christ at the end of the age. Others trace the view directly to Miss MacDonald's pastor, J.N. Darby, which, if you're a dispensationalist who's studied this at all, you know the name Darby. Uh, who left the Church of England to join the Scottish Plymouth Brethren in 1827. Darby first made use of the two-stage return of Christ in his sermons in 1830 and continued to develop the idea throughout his ministry. By his death in 1882, he had written over 40 volumes on various topics concerning prophecy and biblical interpretation. Darby can rightly be considered the father of dispensationalism, for he was the first in the history of Christianity to write and preach using the dispensational hermeneutic. They usually divide up the Bible in seven dispensations, though there's some variety in that. So then Darby made several visits to the United States and in the process made many converts to his new theology. Now, I trust you know that anything in theology that's brand new is basically old heresy. <laughs> um, anyway, one of whom was C.I. Schofield. Now, I remember at the Christian school that I went to here in Sanford that has the associated church with it that I shared the post of, especially as a younger, you know, elementary school student in a, some of the few youth group or church events that I went to, because I didn't go to the church there, but I did go to the school, most of the members had a Schofield Reference Bible. It might have been called the New Schofield Reference Bible. This is the same Schofield here who published the Schofield Study Bible in 1909. This study Bible was essentially a King James Bible with a running dispensational commentary along with the text of the scriptures. By 1959, the Schofield Bible had sold 3 million 
copies, and is still the Bible of choice for many who hold to these you know, convictions. Uh, another of Darby's converts was D.L. Moody, who in his day became one of the most popular evangelists in the English-speaking world. Darby's theology uh, swept through the church on both sides of the Atlantic and was in the process of becoming entirely mainstreamed by the beginning of the 20th century, right? the beginning of the 1900s, a little over 100 years ago now. Now, notice there's, a, there's an important footnote here that I want to read to you as well in this book. It says, In 1956, fundamentalist, dispensationalist, Baptist author, and former president of the American Baptist Association, Albert Garner, admitted in Bible Analysis, his book, uh, in 1956, that then popular views concerning the rapture and the resurrection of the dead were not more than 50 years old. He writes, A few years ago, it was considered heresy to preach that there were two resurrections, one for the righteous and another for the unrighteous. That's what dispensationalism teaches. But today it is generally admitted by most Bible scholars that there shall be two resurrections. And it says he goes on to detail the theory that only those who are members of Baptist churches and are looking for the coming of Christ will be raptured and proceeds to defend himself against charges of heresy by writing, quote, This position is considered by some to be just as heretical as the idea of a different time element, for the resurrection of the just and the unjust was some 50 years ago. So you see that this teaching was novel. It became mainstream uh, into the early 1900s around that time, and even advocates of it admitted at the beginning of the 1900s, end of the 1800s, it was still regarded by many as heretical teaching. So you see all that there um, and the origins of it, that it perhaps even came from the visions of a young woman and, and then her pastor systematized these things. And you think of the Mormon um, cult, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of strange teachings, you know, cropped up in the 1800s. And again, I love conservative dispensational brothers and sisters, but you need to own the history of a lot of your teaching here, that it is new, that it is novel, that it is not represented uh, beyond 200 years ago. And so either uh, everybody in the church was wrong uh, prior to that time, or these distinctives are wrong. Uh, and now just because something has been refined or recovered, doesn't necessarily mean it is wrong. In other words, uh, some will argue that, well, really historical premillennialism were of that same stream. Most historical premillennialists, especially when these things were forming, were adamantly speaking, you know, against them, not, not at all affirming them. Charles Spurgeon, for example, uh, was one such uh, minister, prominent minister, who was historic premillennial, but completely rejected, you know, rejected dispensationalism. So, You've got to recognize the novelty of this and the um, confusion and damage that this has done in the last 150 plus years, uh, especially in our nation in the United States. I know that's hard to hear. I know that you may think I'm trying to be a bully. I'm not trying to be a bully. I'm trying to be faithful to God's word and encourage you to see that there's errors here, that if you see this from God's word and escape these errors, wow, it can be freeing. It can be giving you true hope about the growth of God's church and kingdom and his will being done now on earth as it is in heaven, especially in the dark, challenging times that we're facing right in front of us. Um, so, yeah, and the, the author talks about how uh, those who advocate dispensationalism 
really those in this system. I've never, never hear of any other positions. And they're told like, this is simply the straightforward teaching of the Bible. And anybody who questions this is clearly trying to be fast and loose with the Bible and not taking their stand on the word of God. When, as we've just mentioned, it's in many ways, just quite the opposite uh, of the case that uh, the three main eschatological end times positions throughout church history has been premillennial of the historical variety, not dispensational, because that was novel, not imminent rapture view, um, amillennial, and then postmillennial. Uh, and, you know, p these terms are somewhat fluid. I don't always find them the most helpful. I'd rather just, you know, let's talk about what we believe from God's word and so on. So, um, Here's, here's another thing here. Christian historian Ian uh, Murray, here, here's what he says about the foundations of, of dispensationalism and the, well, the damages that it has caused. There could be no doubt that one reason for the influence of Darby's writings was their constant appeal to scripture and his claims so repeatedly made that express revelation alone weighed with him. And again, as we've seen, that was not necessarily uh, the case. Now, I believe that everybody who holds to this firmly believes it's from the word of God. I'm not arguing that they're not trying to make a biblical argument. They absolutely are. And again, there's good Christians who hold to these teachings. Um, if that wasn't the case, then we'd be in bad shape because probably still in our nation, 80, 90% of Christians, conservative Christians, hold to some form of this. Um, but we need to understand that it is not at all the only view. In fact, it is the most novel, recent view uh, in church history, and as I'm submitting to you, is not an accurate one and is not a helpful one. Uh, the Ryrie study, Ryrie study Bible came out in 1986, which sort of further modernized Schofield's teachings and writings, which are a modernizing in his own day of uh, Darby, and so on and so forth. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of speak a little bit more about the last maybe 50 years of this, and then kind of wrap this up. Uh, so, you know, Hal Lindsey, you know, um, the Left Behind books that came later. A lot of these books, they were all speaking of this coming imminent return of Christ. And again, this has been spoken of in these belief systems for, you know, going back to the 1800s. Uh, but that hasn't come yet. But the, the damage that it causes, so Hal, Hal Lindsey wrote The Late Great Planet Earth in 1970. His book, by 1971, was already in its ninth printing. And Christians all over the different denominational spectrums were, were imbibing this and soaking it in. Uh, and this author, Dwayne Garner of this book, he says it could be argued that no other book outside of the Bible had more widespread influence on the church in the last 50 to 100 years than the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And then, you know, Lindsey wrote follow-ups in the 1980s. He wrote Countdown to Armageddon. And then in 1994, he wrote Planet Earth, 2000 AD, which is a rehash of his book from 1970, The Late Great Planet Earth. And again, the dispensational teachings are looking at the latest newspaper paper articles and clippings to say that the end is near, the end is nigh. Uh, the return of Christ is imminent. Uh, but again, was it? Uh, it hasn't been. No. Hal Lindsey, I don't even know if he's alive anymore. But his books, beginning in 1970, were 50-some years out from that now. And, you know, his prophecies, so to speak, have not been true, have not been realized. Uh, some of the things that 
he was looking at or focusing on, at least so around the turn of the century, 2000 AD, earthquake data, strange weather patterns, deforest, uh, deforestation, El Nino, depletion of the ozone layer, proliferation of nuclear weapons, and the AIDS virus were all new proof that the sky was falling, that the end is nigh. Well, these are perhaps some of these things, real things that need to be addressed and handled, but it's not a sign that Christ's return is imminent. Uh, there has been wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus says in the first century, we're going to get to Matthew 24 in a moment here, uh, since this time and since the fall of man. And horrible things, cataclysmic things have happened, not just in our nation, but all over the world. But the end has not come yet. And so the question is, what will uh, precipitate or bring about the return of Christ? If anything that we can um, at any level know or measure. Well, as I stated earlier, if Christ is seeking to build his church and his kingdom on earth, and you can look at, um, we'll take time in just a moment to do that, but from the Old Testament on into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation and so on, um, that Christ is going to build his kingdom, that there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that the kings of the nations will come and bring their glory in to well, the new heavens, the new earth to Christ, to his church, to his kingdom, fruits of holiness, of righteousness predominantly. But yes, uh, the kingdoms of this world so turning to the Lord that it even spills out, in, of course, into all that we do. So that you can think of um, not just beautiful cathedral-like churches or architecture for that sake, where everybody in there doesn't actually believe in Jesus, but monuments to the Lord for his glory, to praise him, to worship him, prioritizing these things. In other words, living covenantally, living multi-generationally, seeing that God has promised to make Abraham, all the way back in Genesis the, you know, 15, 17, 18, and so on, what, what was the promise? I will make you the father of many nations. He said, I'll make you into a great nation, and then I'll make you the father of many nations. And then... What does it say in Galatians 3 and 4, Romans 3 and 4, that if you have faith in Christ, whether Jew or Greek, you are one in Christ, and you are the seed or a child of Abraham. The realization of the Abrahamic promises are realized in and through Christ Jesus and the blood of the new covenant, because it is Christ who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you can also go to Galatians and Romans there and see that uh, Paul there writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, is saying that the promise was made to the one seed, ultimately, which was Christ. And so prior to dispensationalism, by and large, uh, the church of any branch, denominational branch, read the Bible as one unfolding story building you know, so to speak, brick by brick, brick upon itself, not cutting and carving it up into dispensations where each new dispensation was sort of a, a reboot or a restart or um, a different way of dealing. Do you, do you realize that, uh, and maybe you personally believe this, uh, that many of the old school dispensational teachers would say that in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people were not saved by grace in Christ, but by works. At some level, they mix in sacrifices and works for the salvation because they say, well, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus hadn't shed his blood yet, so they had to be saved by works. Well, 
read all the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and you see that Christ was there with them. Not in the flesh yet, but he's eternally God the Son. He was there with them, and through the eyes of faith, they trusted in Christ for salvation, waiting for and pointing forward to the coming sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now, one of the main passages that comes into dispute for all these end times teachings is Matthew chapter 24. And for many, you know, hearkening back to Daniel chapter 9, because it's quoted there, and the abomination of desolation, uh, everybody sees this or believes this to be something that is going to happen at yet some future point. And sure enough, dispensationalism, for whatever reason, always says it's going to happen in our lifetime, likely, or our generation. But let's go to Matthew 24. Um, let's begin at verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this is all important questions to handle these things. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Now, i got to pause there. Just basic interpretation of scripture. Any good pastor interpreting the Bible and then helping the congregation understand is going to say, Who is this speaking to? Who is this referring to? They will deliver up you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who is Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to those in the first century when he lived on this earth. He's speaking to that generation. He's speaking to the disciples with him, and particularly he's speaking to the apostles, whom he will send out, the, the twelve. Judas will betray him, of course, but then they replace him, the twelve that will be sent out. He's saying this is particularly true of you and in your lifetime. So if Christ dies in you know AD 30 or so, uh, maybe a few years after that, by AD 70, the temple will be destroyed. So he's telling them in the next generation, the next 40 years, what's going to take place before he comes. And how is he going to come? He's going to come in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 in the destruction of the temple. All part, really, of his first coming and the work that he did in his first coming to earth in the flesh and then judging Jerusalem so that then the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth and Jew and Gentile alike are grafted in to Christ, awaiting that final return of Christ. But dispensationalists look at Matthew 24 as all futuristic, as in this hasn't been fulfilled yet in our lifetime, but they'll look at verses like this and say this will likely be fulfilled in our lifetime along with the rapture and everything else. So they're looking at this as yet future and probably going to happen in our lifetime where I'm teaching this and, and interpreting the word of God here as has many 
uh, I would dare say most in the history of the church uh, prior to dispensationalism is telling you this was fulfilled in the first century. Well, let me keep reading. Um, then they would deliver you up, you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now again, the dispensationalist hears this as the end, as in the the end, 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 right? The, the final coming of Christ, um, and I'm trying to remember the exact dispensational beliefs after that, because they do believe in a thousand-year reign, and then the final judgment, I believe. And I, I can't get the dispensational chart straight in my head, because I'm not a dispensationalist. But what we are saying is, this was all speaking of what Christ said he was speaking of, which was the temple, the earthly temple, and its destruction, which took place in that first generation of the Jewish people to whom Christ is actually speaking. Why would he be speaking to the people in the 21st century, but not the very people in front of him? Why would he be speaking to us in the 21st century and not those who lived in the 17th or the 18th or the 3rd century or whatever the case may be? I trust you see that such an interpretation really doesn't make any sense. Uh, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Again, this is speaking of those in the first century, those that are standing in front of him. Uh, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now again, just think about that, the Sabbath. Now, I believe that Christ, the day he rose, the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the New Testament, New Covenant Sabbath. But of course, at this time, Christ is speaking to the Jewish people on the seventh day Sabbath, the Saturday. Anyway, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been, uh, sorry, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. You, the ones that Jesus is speaking to in the first century. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, a brief comment on that, about the eagles being gathered together. The Roman armies that surrounded Jerusalem in AD 70, which God used to judge his people and came in judgment, uh, their banner was an eagle. And so some... Uh, interpret that, not dispensationalists, obviously, but some of us uh, would interpret that to be referring to the Roman uh, army surrounding uh, Jerusalem. Now, I want to pause right there for a moment. And you may say, well, how can Christ come in judgment through Roman armies? Like, that's not Christ coming or being being seen. Well, if you read 
just some of the things that are written in the Gospels here, as we're looking at in the book of Acts as well, uh, by the historian Josephus of that time, who saw these things as, as an eyewitness. There were signs and wonders in the first century uh, portending the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. However, let's let's think about this for a minute. Go back to the Old Testament. How did God judge Jerusalem, judge the Jewish people, the Israelites, throughout Scripture? Did he come uh, bodily or tangibly? Well, not until Christ came in the flesh, right? But did he come with mighty power? Yes. Did he come in real judgment by using even wicked pagan nations such as the Romans. Absolutely, he did. When Israel rebelled in the promised land after the days of, of King David and Solomon, who did God use to lead them into exile? And also, who did God say he was going to punish his wayward people, Israel, by using this, this nation, this king? Well, you have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who comes in and does so. You have the Assyrian kings. You later have Persian kings who conquer them. And eventually King Cyrus, God puts it in his heart to uh, let them go back into the promised land after they've been captured and taken into exile, the northern kingdom first and the southern kingdom later. But the prophets and uh, the Old Testament scriptures speak of this as God coming to them in judgment by using these pagan rulers, the Babylonians, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and so on and so forth. And so, this is in keeping with how God has dealt with his people. And so for Christ to say that he will come in judgment, uh, yes, there will be a coming final return of Christ in judgment uh, where we will see him bodily and so on. And the, you know, the new heavens and new earth will be brought in in their fullness. Christ has began that in his first coming, but the full glory, the resurrection of the body awaits, of course, his final coming. We, we all agree on that. Uh, but for Christ to come in judgment... Uh, does not require Christ to come uh, in the flesh, is, 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 is the point here. So, verse 29 and following, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they see, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, historically, um, putting dispensationalism aside for a second, remember, what did the disciples ask at the beginning of this chapter? They asked him several questions. They asked him um, in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? When Christ said, do you see this temple here? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. They ask, when will these things be? And then they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so different commentators throughout church history have seen as Jesus answers, he's progressing in different questions here. And so some have seen that this is beginning to refer to the final coming of Christ that is yet future to our time and life. But all of them recognize that Christ is first responding to the people there of what happened in the first century, in the year A.D. 70, uh, in the destruction of that temple. Now, here's what's key. Let's keep reading in verse 32 to show that this is referring to the first century. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. Now, again, he's speaking to people of the first century, saying you're going to see these things in your lifetime. At the doors, he says. Now, here's key, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, that first century, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now again, uh, I know and believe for sure that dispensationalists are striving to argue biblically from this, and they, they tout that, and they would say that our position is probably some sort of allegorizing of things because we're saying it happened through Roman armies and, and we're not being literal. Well, I've argued for that just a moment ago, the coming of judgment of God through Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, and others, and so on. But if you want to be literal here, and we should want to be, what does Christ say? He says this will all take place in that generation, that first century generation. No, These things will take place. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, Christ goes on after that in verse 36, and he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So the end of the age, the final consummation of all things, you know, is Christ beginning to point to that final second coming? Could well be. There's intramural debates about that. But the immediate reference here of the judgment that's taking place is all speaking about the first century. And uh, again, dispensationalists look at these things as uh, a rapture that's supposed to be imminent in our own particular uh, lifetime. Um, so that, that's an important text. Um, Daniel 9, which, was, which is referenced in these passages here, the abomination of desolation. Again, many look at that in dispensationalism, well, all of them do, as future. But it says that Christ is coming... I believe it's the same passage there, unless I'm mixing it up with another one, that Christ goes to or comes to the Ancient of Days, the God the Father. Well, when did that happen? It's not a future thing. He's, that's when he ascended into heaven uh, in the first century after he rose from the grave. So, again, we're working on completely two different timelines here. And I trust you begin to see how that drastically affects your view of how we should be living right now. We shouldn't expect necessarily at all that Christ is going to imminently return and rapture us away when much of that was being spoken of about what happened in the first century. So what should we be doing? What should we be expecting? Well, we should be doing and expecting what has happened throughout the last 2,000 years since Christ has come, that there will be yeah, wars, rumors of wars, hardship. But through it all, Christ will build his church. And as he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail uh, against it. From Christ coming and the apostles being persecuted and martyred, the church has gone out to every nation. In fact, Paul in Colossians chapter 1, two different times there, he says in his own lifetime that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Now again, I would urge my dispensationalist brothers to take that into account because they all will say, that's the mission of the church today. We have to be the ones that get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you know, if they say anything would delay the rapture coming, it's that, that maybe the gospel hasn't gone to the ends of the earth yet. Well, Paul says that happened already in the first century. So what is the gospel? What is the kingdom of God? 
These are really the fundamental questions that we are wrestling with here. Well, the kingdom of God was at hand and brought down by Christ in the first century. The fullness of that kingdom, the consummation of that kingdom awaits the second coming. But we are in the millennial reign of Christ now. It is a millennial reign that is not a literal 1,000 years necessarily, but his ruling and his reigning from the right hand of the Father when he was crowned of authority on high uh, after he ascended back up to heaven in the first century. And it is Christ saying, upon that authority that I have accomplished in my blood, in my life, death, resurrection, and ascension, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing and teaching them all that I command you. The nations shall be discipled and one to Christ before he comes again. So do you see how those of us, um, you know, optimistic, amillennialist, postmillennialist, and others, really most non-dispensationalists, we're working on a completely different wavelength. We see the growth of the church and the kingdom, right? Christ says the kingdom of God is like leaven. And it, a little leaven, it, it grows, it spreads. He also compares it to uh, a little mustard seed, he says in the Gospels, that it's the tiniest seed. But it grows and it spreads and becomes a full tree and birds come and nest in it. He says that is the nature of the kingdom of God. In other words, it's going to grow slowly, imperceptibly, like a tree does. But it will grow through the generations, through the millennia now, or 2,000 plus years since Christ, or coming up on 2,000 years. That's how the kingdom shall grow, and the kingdom shall come, and God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we are thinking uh, here at Heritage Reformed Presbyterian Church, multi-generationally, covenantally, build for blessings that you yourself may not see, but by God's grace, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren may reap the harvest of, right? There's buildings, churches, cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build and are still standing and majestic. Now, a lot of the people in those nations may not be faithful anymore, unfortunately. But at the time, it was built by people of multiple generations who had a confidence in building things that last because Christ is building up his church here on earth and not just waiting to whisk us away imminently and then do things after he, he's had the two-stage second coming. And so we're operating on very different principles. You know, why do I prioritize, for example, um, well, there's many reasons why, and the Bible commands it, but uh, just from this angle of the view of the future and the end times, uh, why do I have seven children? The oldest is ten. <laughs> because we don't know what birth control is? Well, no, we do. We don't think it's safe to use, but because we want to see the next generation rise up and serve the Lord. Because we want to see that our first disciples that we're called to are the disciples in our own home. And we can get into a discussion about the meaning of baptism and the covenant. You know, we baptize our children uh, based on God's covenant promises, and we teach and train them to repent and believe in Christ so that they shall be saved. That's a bigger discussion here. But we're building for the generations to come. We're seeing the promises that God has made beginning all the way back to, even before Abraham, but the, the covenant there of Abraham, that he'd be the father of many nations fulfilled in Christ, continuing to be expressed and realized now down through the generations. Uh, of covenantal faithfulness, gospel preaching, teaching, keeping faithfulness, teaching all of God's word, teaching all that I have commanded you. 
as uh, Christ says to his apostles, that were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, of Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, as it says in Ephesians 2, and that were to continue to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God and his word for the sake of the church of God, for the sake of the people of God. But dispensationalism, um, by its very nature, joined up with, or even produced in some ways perhaps, linked arms with sort of pop-quick revivalism, we want revival, but revivalism, uh, the sort of, you know, campus meeting, quick flash, you know, get everybody saved at this camp meeting sort of thing, where the gospel is is watered down, and in some churches today not even really presented at all anymore, that salvation is no longer something that God sovereignly must give and work in our hearts by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but is it's called decisionalism, decisional evangelism, that it's all up to you and your decision. You just have to decide for Christ. If you sign that card, if you make that decision, it's signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, where has that dispensational revivalism in its really raw form like that gotten us? Look at the woke world in which we are living in today. Look at the, um, you know, and many in these camps have been doing studies, the Pew Research Forums and all these different things, recognizing that we're not keeping our children we're not teaching them sound doctrine because we're in this, you know, imminent rapture bubble. Um, so you better rededicate your life one more time because Christ is coming back very soon. At the Christian school that I went to here in Sanford, again, there was things I appreciate about it. But uh, my teacher in seventh grade, and uh, I appreciate her too, uh, but after 9-11 and the World Trade Center and the bombings there, the next, probably the next day, next class, very shortly after, uh, you remember that was obviously September, she said, well, children, enjoy this Christmas because it's going to be your last one and Jesus is going to come back. She didn't say that might be the case, that could be the case. She put the fear in our hearts that that would be the case. Now, I trust in her mind, she saw that as a good thing. Christ coming back certainly is good and we desire his return to make all things new. But it misses the complete point that God has also called us to build up his church and kingdom here on earth at this time, and then the end shall come. First Corinthians 15 and so on speaks about that. And of course, you had one girl who began sobbing and crying, and of course, it was a false prophecy. And if we apply the standards of scripture about false prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, false prophets were stoned, right? So I'm not saying she was making a formal prophecy, but you get the point. She was saying dogmatically, this is the last Christmas. This is it. This is the end because it's all this rapture-ready, imminent return of Christ teaching that, well, the, the World Trade Center is hit, thousands of people die. That is a horrible tragedy and a horrible, scary thing. This must mean Christ is coming back for the church right now. No, no. We've been through world war, civil war, revolutionary war as a nation. Other nations have risen and fallen. This nation, I fully likely expect, will probably fall before Christ returns. But you've got to understand, that's because I believe it's, in the end, some iteration of this land that's now known as the United States will be one for Christ. Maybe not every last single person in it, of course, but many Christians, because the gospel's growing and spreading like leaven. And whatever it's called at that time, the United States of America or some new nation that forms hundreds or thousands of years from now, Christ's church and kingdom will be built up on this earth in a powerful way. Yes, there'll be sin and resistance and, and unbelievers, but a, a true growth of the kingdom that leavens the nation, nations for God. 
before Christ returns. And so that's, that gives us optimism. That gives us real hope. <clears throat> and there are various interpretations that are not dispensational, uh, that are, you know, in varying degrees, I guess you could say, more or less optimistic. Um, but I would just encourage dispensationalists to return uh, to the Word of God on this. I know that you believe that you have gone to the Word of God, but understand the novelty of, of these teachings. Understand that it <laughs> came out of perhaps even a, a, a Scottish girl who had supposed visions, and that, of course, isn't rooted in God's Word. Look at the passages that we very briefly touched on. Uh, and realize that historically there's been many other biblically Bible-based positions on this that I trust you'll find are more faithful and, and, and true to God's holy word. Um, you know, I personally call myself, when someone forces me to label myself, which I don't really like because I'd rather let's just talk about what we believe to clarify things, but I call myself, when I'm forced to answer, uh, an optimistic amillennialist. That yes, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, begun in his first coming, but is not yet consummated until his final coming. But through that time, the kingdom, the church will grow, though suffering, hostility, and cross-bearing will continue every step of the way. Um, many of my friends and some who are at our congregation are post-millennial. Uh, and in essence, I agree pr predominantly with what they say. I mean, I, you know, depending on who you ask, you could call me post-millennial. Um, and so, you know, there, again, there's different views, there's different, you know, there's books out there called, you know, Four Views on the Millennium or, you know, The End Times or whatever. You can go out there and read and study. But I would encourage you to do so, to do that. Uh, and, you know, drink deeply from the Word of God on this. Uh, but ultimately, we need to see that God is encouraging us and calling us to build up His church and kingdom on earth. The Lord's Prayer is not prayed in vain. The Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has promised, yes, through many generations, hundreds and already been thousands of years since Christ's coming, to, to bring about. But he is bringing it about. Look how the kingdom has grown since Christ has come. Uh, there are Christians flourishing in every nation today. Yes, there's tribulation. Yes, there's our, our nation in some ways I do agree and believe is apostatizing. And I, I like to call myself optimistic. Uh in my view of, of the growth of the kingdom over the long term, over the long horizon. But I'm also a realist, and we should be realistic about what we see in front of us. Uh, I believe that, that the nations shall be one for Christ before he returns, based on what Scripture, scripture teaches. I believe that's going to take thousands of years, and quite possibly hundreds, if not probably thousands of years more. So that means, because I'm also a realist and see the struggles that God also says is going to continue throughout this time, that... This nation could go into absolute eclipse and a, and a woke hellhole, if you want to speak of it, for hundreds of years. And God is a major pruning where there are few for the next hundred years in this nation uh, that are saved. That, that could happen, and that does not contradict the ultimate growth and continued growth of the kingdom. Uh, and I would urge anybody who comes maybe from a more post-millennial perspective who refuses to be a realist that that's also an error. Just because God's going to build his church and kingdom before he returns doesn't mean that there won't be real persecution or hardship in, their li in, in this lifetime or in our own personal lives. There can be, there shall be, there will be. But through that all, Christ will build up his church and kingdom. And so I think I'll leave it at that. I've gone long and I don't want to go any longer. But I, I, I do trust, you know, I think this is span, uh, 
you know, looking through this book quickly, I think why the end is not near 40 pages. You can read it in an hour. It's a helpful starter on these things to, to see that there are other views and understandings. Um, you know, there's much deeper and more detailed works as well. Good articles that you can read and so on and so forth. But, uh, I do hope that you'll, uh, prayerfully consider what I've said, the history of dispensationalism, some of its errors and its novelty, uh, and so on and so forth. And be encouraged that, uh, we're not going to have to be whisked away before Christ really builds up his church and his kingdom. The kingdom is not a far distant thing. The kingdom is present even now at this time and is being built up and has been for the last 2000 years. And so, you know, our emphasis is going to be get married, godly man, godly woman, biblical manhood and womanhood, have children, as many as the Lord will bless you with, within, yes, taking in the fact that we live in a cursed fallen world and so on, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Ephesians 6 commands us, echoing Deuteronomy chapter 6, raise them faithfully, be salt and light to those who are your nearest neighbors, love God for your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, but who is your neighbor? Yes, in the broadest sense, anyone and everyone is your neighbor. However, this parable of the Good Samaritan shows you that the one who is near to you is the one who is in need. Uh, the person dying on the on the on a back alley, and you're the only one that sees it. Yeah, that's your neighbor. You got to go help. But I can't necessarily go help, and I have no real direct obligation to the person dying uh, on a street in another state, another nation, another country. You understand there has to be a priority of ordered love and affections. And so we have to prioritize what God has prioritized. And that's exciting is that the blueprint is right there in scripture. We don't know what a man or a woman is because we haven't been teaching it because, well, we just got to get everybody saved. But if we go back to teaching the word of God and building for the long haul, you can be a on fire radical for Jesus Christian simply by getting married simply by raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, simply by being faithful. That's harder. Day in and day out, even just the decades of your lifetime, to be faithful to God, that is so much harder than quick little flashy things or flashy fun times at fun church. But actually studying and being built up, man, you're eating the, the meat, the potatoes, the vegetables, the good stuff, and are growing as a Christian, and growing your family, and teaching them, and on and on it goes down through the generations. And yes, being salt and light in that way is also uh, evangelistic. When others say, wow, why do you guys do things the way that you do? I want to be a part of that. We can preach the gospel to them and say, the good news is the kingdom of God has come. The end is not near in the way that so many think of it. Yes, we're in the beginnings of the new heavens, the new earth, so to speak, but the church is being built up, the kingdom is being built up, and let's get to work. There's there's much work to do, and uh, Christ is building it. And what's happening right now, the burdens, the hardships have been like this in one way, form, or another many times in the last 2,000 years. This too shall pass. Christ has overcome the world, and he promises to bless his faithful. And we don't need to cower in a corner or you know pray, Lord, beam me up. Lord, no. Build your church. Build your kingdom. When you are ready to come, Lord, and if that would be sooner rather than later, praise the Lord. Because in the end, he will have to make all things new and bring in that glorified state. But he's also promised that his church, his kingdom will grow here on earth as it is in heaven 
until that day. And so there's hope there. There's optimism there. It should reorient your priorities as well. Yes, I need to Typically, most of us get married, have a family, have children. I need to go deep in the Word of God. We need to teach it to one another. We need to teach our neighbors, uh, love one another, uh, and, and grow in a very holistic sort of way. Uh, I can get to a lot more about uh, work, vocation, calling. True Christian ministry isn't just pastor and teacher and missionary. Uh, we need those, obviously, but everything you do for Christ and His kingdom no, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, is part of building up his church and kingdom uh, in, in a broad sense. So you're a farmer, uh, you're a, a scientist, you're, you know, you, you, you're a younger person working at the fast food place. Don't despise that. You know, the Protestant work ethic is a real thing because we know that God values this. It's part of taking dominion, filling the earth and subduing it. All that's still going on because Christ is still committed to building his church inside out, born again of the Spirit, then all that we do, everything that we do for the glory of God. And so I hope this is encouraging to you. If you would like to learn more about this, please message me, talk with me. Um, you know, we preach and teach this uh, from the Word of God, book by book, uh, you know, exegeting the scriptures at Heritage Reformed Presbyterian Church. And um, if you're looking for a church, you don't belong to a church, or you're looking to a church teaching uh, the Word of God, uh, please consider us uh, and, and worshiping with us. Thanks and God bless.